Heavenly Father, uh, I put this word before you, Father, as it is yours. And as we endeavor to open and study it, Father, we come to it uh, in humility, in awesome wonder, in an appreciation for just how important it is, how unique it is, how special it is. We want to handle it with care. We want to understand it fully, Father. We want to we want to consider all that it asks of us. We want to be workmen approved in how we handle it. And, Father, we want to glory in it. So show it to us, Father, anew tonight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, for those who've been around for a little while and know where we've been, our scene is changing. In our previous couple of lessons in this chapter, we've been on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, or as I've told you, the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. But today we're moving. Jesus specifically is moving. He's going to a new region, a place he hasn't visited before in the Gospels. And in fact, our story today involves two journeys to two different places, two out-of-the-way places. And Jesus makes these journeys so he can teach his disciples an important lesson. Both of these places that he's going are important to the lessons at hand because they're both correcting serious misconceptions on the part of these men. These are things that the disciples thought they understood about God and about his plan, but they are not right for the kingdom program, that is, for the period of time following Christ's departure and before his second coming, the time we're still a part of now. In this period of time, there's a way of thinking, a way of ministry, a way of doing things that Christ has asked of the body. And fundamentally, it's no different than God has ever asked of people. But certainly it was different from the way the Jews thought of ministry. The lesson that prompts Jesus' journey today may be the most difficult kingdom program truth for any Jew to ever accept. Last week, if you remember, he challenged his disciples to ignore the Pharisees because they were imposters. They didn't know what they were talking about. And I told you last week, this would have been difficult for them to accept because the Pharisees, by and large, were esteemed. They were accomplished. They were even feared by Jewish culture. But as tough as that one was, the one that's coming today is even harder because it requires that disciples completely rethink their most closely and strongly held belief and bias, incompatible with the kingdom program. And because that thinking was so entrenched, the only way he could get it loosed from their heads was this journey. So leaving from the western side of the Galilee, let's start in verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began crying out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. That's the first of our two journeys. Our previous scene, as I told you, was on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, a place called Gennesaret. But now, and we'll put a map up for you, Now he's going to withdraw, Matthew says, into a far northern region, Gentile area of Judea. And if you see the little body of water, that's the Sea of Galilee. We've zoomed out a lot from the maps I've given you in the past. 
And the red lines are just Roman roads of the day. And he moves up toward the VMR, which is the way of the sea. He goes up to Akko, and then he goes north into Tyre and Sidon, up into that region. Matthew says it's the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were ancient Phoenician cities. They are obviously on the Mediterranean coast. That's present-day Lebanon today. And you may know from Old Testament teaching, the best-known character associated with the Phoenician coast was Jezebel who was the wife of Ahab. Anyway, by Jesus' day, Rome had conquered the whole region. So the area we're looking at here, Phoenicia, that was part of the district of Syria under Roman authority. And it was accessible to the Judeans because everything within the Roman Empire was basically one nation, one empire, so they could travel around. But nonetheless, historically, that region was an enemy of Israel. And it was so because that's actually part of the land that was given to Israel by Moses and Joshua when the Lord put them in the land. Israel proper includes present-day Lebanon. But they never conquered that region. The tribes who were given that land refused to or were unable to. And so the Phoenicians never were displaced. And they were always a thorn in the side of Israel living in that region. And they were enemies. Jesus goes up there because Mark tells us in his gospel in chapter 7 that he wanted to be alone with the twelve. Mark says in 7.24, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. So he goes into Tyre trying to keep a low profile for a while. Now you remember a few lessons back, I told you this would be Jesus' pattern. Whenever he wanted a respite from the crowds, he would retreat to some Gentile area where there were very few Jews. The idea was that while he was there, he might get a little bit of a break. No one would know he's there. And you would think, going that far north into the Phoenician countryside, he would be able to get a little bit of relief, but it didn't work out that way. His fame precedes him, and the Gentiles flock to him. One particular woman who comes in the crowd catches Jesus' attention, and she's the focus of our story, at least the first half. Matthew says it is a Canaanite woman from a region of Tyre, and she comes out crying to Jesus, Heal my demon-possessed daughter. Now Matthew calls her a Canaanite. That's not really a specific term, not by Jesus' day. Canaanites are descended from Ham's grandson, Canaan. Ham was one of the three sons of Noah on the ark. And his grandson later settled in this region. And so all the tribes spread out, Hittite, Perizzite, all those ites, they all come from Canaan. And as a result, they're all generally Canaanites. That line was cursed by God in Genesis 9 as a result of something that his grandfather Ham did. And so that family line of Canaanites was marked out for destruction by God. And in the providence of God, he appointed that it would be the Jewish people who would carry out that curse, who would carry out that destruction on behalf of God. But they did not do that. They didn't obey the call of God to come in and destroy the people and remove them from the land. So over time, he ended up with the Canaanites living alongside the Jewish people in the land, and that created all kinds of problems for the Jewish people. It also resulted in Jews loathing Canaanites and Canaanites loathing Jews throughout their history. But by this time, Canaanites as a group were really no longer the thought. It was more specific than that, like Phoenicians, etc., And the fact that Matthew calls this woman a Canaanite is a bit of a betrayal of his own bias, of his own prejudice in how he saw this person. And in fact, the Jew became accustomed to calling Gentiles dogs. Now, we don't think of a dog the way they did. Jews in that day especially thought of dogs as the lowest animal on earth. Uh, To a Jew, a dog was a savage, 
It was a brutal, unthinking creature. It tore its prey apart. It lived in filth. That was what they knew about dogs, which is proof to us, by the way, that the dogs of the Bible's time were all poodles. So they just saw dogs as that kind of terrible thing. And and this particular woman, who they would have called a dog, a Gentile, comes to Jesus seeking healing for her daughter, possessed by a cruel demon. Now, in earlier lessons, way back, I told you about demon possession and how that works, and some of the the details of it. I'm not going to go through that again here tonight, but it's worth noting how in Jesus' day, demon possession was a generally accepted and legitimate diagnosis. You see that? I mean, today our worldview would see any such conclusion as superstition, as myth, and it would have no place in our age of science and reason. But that is not how the Bible presents demon possession, is it? The Bible presents it as a common reality of the human experience. In virtually every case where you find a person in the Bible pointing to demon possession as the cause of of some condition or ailment, Scripture always backs them up. In fact, there's only one example in all the New Testament that I know of where someone's claim of demon possession turns out to be false. Do you know which one that is? It's when the Pharisees lied in claiming Jesus had a demon. That's the only time you find it falsely said. Everywhere else it's mentioned, as you see here, the end result of the story is that there was in fact a demon, and the demon is cast out, and then the person is totally normal after that happens. That pattern would suggest to us that demon possession is a more present reality than many in our world would consider, much less accept. All right, moving on. This woman comes begging Jesus to free her daughter. Notice his pattern. He does not say a word to her at first. He just literally ignores her. What is he doing? He's waiting to see whether this woman is seeking healing as a demonstration of faith. He's waiting to find out if this woman is a woman of faith. Because remember, following his rejection in chapter 12, we learn that Jesus now only heals people who demonstrate faith first. That's a prerequisite now. It didn't used to be, but now it has become one. You notice what she says in verse 22. She says, Lord, Son of David. That's a messianic title. You may know this. It's a reference to the prophecies of the Old Testament that tell us that the Messiah, when he came, would be a descendant of the line of David, the son of David, as it were. And she says this, which is somewhat insightful. You wouldn't have expected a Gentile to necessarily know this. It would have required that she know something of the Jewish scriptures. Yeah, but on the other hand, maybe she's mimicking something she's heard. And it does not require faith to cry out to Jesus. You might think that's what it must mean, but friends, everyone was doing it. Many people pray out to Jesus for things they want. Did you know that? All over the world, people are praying to Jesus for things they want. And those same people also pray to Buddha, and they pray to Mother Earth, or Allah, or their dead ancestors, or anyone else that might be mentioned to them as a possible source to get what they want. That's called syncretism, and it happens all the time. People are always doing it. They are equal opportunity worshipers. Because in the end, they really don't care which deity gives them what they want as long as they get it. That's their their mindset. They only care about having their needs met. And you know, that's actually the chief conceit of false religion. It's a worship of self. Masquerading as an act of devotion to some god. Because it's just a pursuit of selfish interests. Whatever thing I can bow down to, whatever way I can cross my arms or genuflect or do what I need to do, say the magic words, okay, as long as I get what I want, I really don't care what I have to go through to get it. That's false religion in a nutshell. Selfish pursuit masquerading as an act of devotion. And because it's so easy to do that, 
Jesus isn't going to just fall for the first person who comes up to him saying, Lord, heal me. Remember what he says elsewhere in the Gospels? In the day of judgment, there will be those who say, Lord, Lord, we saw you teach in the streets and we ate with you. And his response to them is not a good one. Because the words are cheap. And as I said, he is now serving only the faithful, only the believer in this last year of his life on earth. He is no longer looking to minister to large crowds as a rule. So he ignores this woman for a time. And what he's waiting for is to see her faith in him is genuine. But he's doing this for another reason as well. It's not just a test for her. He's actually testing his disciples too. You know, it's not said in the text, although it becomes apparent later. But I think what we can read between the lines here is that he's interested in their response to her. Notice, though, she's very persistent. Very persistent. She just keeps begging him. She won't take his ignoring as the last word. She won't take no for an answer. Ignoring someone for a time, then, is a part of Jesus' tactic. In fact, it is one of his favorite ways to find out if someone is truly who they think they are or not. Because only if they are persistent in their pleading does Jesus finally engage with them at some point. Now, waiting and not engaging with someone while they plead with you until finally giving in is a very bad parenting technique. But it's an excellent way to find true believers. Why? Well, because those who are simply wishing for some deity to give them what they want are only going to give so much time and energy to that pursuit. Right? If you're praying to a piece of wood or to some painting or some altar with candles on it and it's not getting you anywhere... If you're the kind to think that God can be wherever you want it to be, you'll move on to some other version of Him. You'll keep looking, you'll keep trying, until you find the one that seems to work. You'll get back to your old patterns. Jesus actually compares that to a dog returning to its vomit, or a pig going back to the mud. It's like we just revert back to the old ways if the new ways don't get us anywhere. But friends, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you don't do that. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm saying you don't. You won't do that. You persist in crying out to Christ. Elsewhere in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says in a parable of a widow that she received justice from an unrighteous judge merely because she wore him down with her pleading. And in that parable, what he teaches is the true mark of faith, the mark of of the believer. Actually, in Luke, it says the mark of the elect is persistence in our appeals to God. You never give up on God. You never look for someone else to give it to you instead of Christ. You just consistently go back to the same source every time. That is a pattern of true faith. Never relenting, never abandoning, always seeking for Jesus. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean you always pray. It doesn't mean you pray enough. It also doesn't mean you don't have moments of doubt in one form or another. I'm not saying you have confidence without shaking. I'm not saying that you're never going to question your faith. That's not what it means. What it means is that even if you don't get your answer immediately, or if you get the answer you didn't like, nonetheless, you don't go anywhere else for a better answer. You don't have another choice. The point is you keep coming back to Jesus, even if you're lazy at the effort, even if you're not sure what it's going to buy you, because you know in your hearts He hears you, He has compassion on you, and there is no other God. Where else would you go? That's the fundamental difference between how true faith approaches Christ and those who do not have true faith. Again, you may doubt, you may have worries, you may not be sure God's going to do what you want. You have all the same emotions anyone else would. The difference is they never drive you to say, well, let's give Buddha a try. Right? You know that's not a real God, and you know there is no other God, so you keep going back to Jesus. That's a form of pleading or of consistent appeal that we're talking about here. 
And not that it's always with the same urgency or, or intensity. It's just that you never try a second option. And that's what Jesus is waiting for here. I think if you had been in that crowd watching the way people responded to him, you would have seen both types. You would have seen those who say, who's that guy? Oh, haven't you heard? He's the guy that heals people. Oh, man, I've had this bum leg for a while. Let's go find out if he'll heal me. And they get in the crowd, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And after a while, it's like, man, he's not doing anything. Come on. What about that guy? He's supposed to be a healer too. All right. But if you know Jesus is the Messiah, if you really understood the Messiah has come to earth as long promised, where else would you be? What else competes with that? Now, you may not get what you want from the Messiah, but you don't go looking for another Messiah. That's the fundamental difference. So Jesus lets her beg for a time. And while this is going on, her persistence becomes a test for the disciples. They get annoyed with the woman. Shouting at Jesus, making a big deal about it. And what do they ask Jesus to do? Now, we've been here before. She's, they say, send her away. Now, I know you guys, if you've been here even just three weeks, do you remember this story? Haven't we seen this somewhere before? Let me remind you. It was when they saw that hungry crowd in Bethsaida. Matthew fourteen fifteen. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the village and buy food for themselves. Remember that whole scene? So here are these guys. Send the crowd away. Now it's send her away. Man, if these guys had their way, ministry would be a piece of cake because there'd be nobody around, man. It would just be them. <laughs> you and Jesus and that's it, man. That's easy life right there. I would sign up for that ministry. What that... F- miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 did was it exposed them. It exposed their hearts. It exposed them to be thinking and living the way Pharisaic Judaism taught people to think and live, which was that everybody existed to serve the leadership in ministry. And what Jesus was trying to do was flip that pyramid upside down and say, no, 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 you exist to serve them. Right? That's what ministry looks like. And how did he teach them that lesson? You remember the whole scene as it played out? He had them serving everyone at the base of the mountain by making the disciples walk back and forth to the food source with Jesus and take baskets over and over again. I mean, for however many hours it took to do that. And then they didn't even get to eat till everyone else had already gotten to eat first. And then they had to eat leftovers. So the whole point of it was to humble those guys and reinforce in their minds what ministry is supposed to look like. And then, by the way, they didn't get it then either. Remember, Mark told us that that hardened their hearts. It didn't convince them. It made them more resentful. So then he puts them on the boat at night, alone, in a storm, so they can feel what it must feel like to be vulnerable and need someone. And then Jesus walks by them, waiting for them to appeal for him. It still didn't work. Here they are now with a poor woman crying out for needs of her own. And instead of seeing her as reason for ministry, they see her as an inconvenience and a bother. Think about the shepherd and the sheep analogy again. This woman is like a lost sheep bleeding for its shepherd. And what they did in their reaction says more about them than it does about her. You know, if you read that the first time and thought, what an annoying woman, I hate when women do that. Well, you're married and your wife should be talking to you after this service. And secondly, you're not understanding what ministry looks like because to a shepherd's heart, the sound of sheep bleeding in need is not annoying. It's the sound of purpose. It's the sound of a mission that needs to be fulfilled. That's the attitude that they're supposed to have. By the way, be wary of shepherds who think that a sheep in need is an interruption to ministry rather than the purpose of ministry. That's not the kind of person you want serving. Anyway, Jesus 
rightly ignores this advice he's getting from these guys. And what he chooses to do instead is the exact opposite. He begins to engage with the woman after these guys have said send her away. And what you're learning is the woman's persistence led to this opportunity. For now, the potential of healing, but he still needs to find out if she is truly a woman of faith. Her persistence is a good sign, but it's not the end of the story. And to understand how he tests her and to understand the conversation that follows, I want to refer back to something that I'm sure most of you know. I want you to imagine one of those cheesy spy movies where you have secret agents and they have to rendezvous at some prearranged location. They don't know each other. And so they're going to have to test to know if each other is the one they're waiting to find. And they, you know how they always do this in the movies, right? One of them has the first half of some sentence as a passphrase and, you know, the brown dog sleeps at night. And then the other person is supposed to say some other phrase that goes with it. And they each know what they're supposed to hear from the other. And if they get the right phrase, okay, I found the right person, right? You've seen movies like that. Well, in a sense, that's what Jesus is doing here with this woman. He's testing her in this way. He makes a provocative statement that's designed to test, does she understand the Messiah's ministry? And he waits to see how she responds. He begins by saying the Messiah was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, that's true, right? The Messiah was born a Jew. He was sent to Israel, and all of that's in fulfillment of God's covenant to his people. And the gospel eventually goes to Gentiles. But keep in mind, Jesus in his, in his first coming never personally took the gospel, broadly speaking, to Gentile nations. He stayed in Israel. That was his target audience. Now, obviously, after he's gone, the church has the mission to take it to the world, and we're doing that. But at the time, what he said was true. The offer of the kingdom went exclusively to Jews. In Jesus' day. And when the Jews rejected that offer, it didn't go anywhere else, not right away. It waited for Pentecost. So he says this to the woman as a true statement, but it's also a test to see if she follows what he's saying. And he says this because it's a test of whether she understands what the Messiah's ministry would be out of Scripture or not. True faith is rooted in the Word of God and in the testimony that it gives us. And if you're just following Jesus for selfish reasons, if it's just some kind of game, then if you hear someone say, uh, this is only for other people, this is only for the Jewish people, as Jesus said here, well, then it's tailor-made to offend you. You know, think about the woman for a moment. If Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, he's a Jewish man saying this to a Gentile woman from two backgrounds that were longtime enemies. It was tailor-made to provoke her if she was thinking in the flesh, if she was just there like anyone else. But someone who understands the Scripture would have to acknowledge the truth of that statement. It wouldn't be offensive. It would be patently true. Look at her response. Initially, it's a bit unclear. I mean, she's not offended. But Matthew 20 says in verse 25, she comes down, bows down before him, and pleads with him for help. So there's that persistence again. That suggests faith. But it could also just be desperation. It really didn't tell you what she's thinking. So Jesus goes a step further. Verse 26. He says, you know, it wouldn't be right to give dogs the food that's meant for children. Now he's turned up the pressure here a little bit. He uses a play on words. And it's such that only a person of true faith would have understood what he just said. He uses an idiom. And the idiom was that you don't give children's food to dogs. And what it meant in the day was you don't favor a pet over a child. Right? There's food appropriate for the children, and then there's food appropriate for a dog or a pet. You wouldn't reverse them. There's certain things for certain people and certain things for animals, and there's a priority implied there. That's all he was saying, right? 
He's simply saying that everything in God's program has to happen according to plan, in a certain order, according to certain priorities. And in the plan of salvation, by the way, the Bible says that the Lord has appointed that the Jewish people would have a place of prominence in the plan of salvation. John 4 says, as Jesus talks to the woman at the well, that salvation is of the Jews. All right? Paul says it this way in Romans 9, 4. We, speaking of himself, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. That's Paul saying, the Jewish people were the first ones in the Bible called adopted sons of God. They are the first to receive the glory of the covenants. They are the first to receive the law, the only ones to receive the law. They are the first and only ones to receive a temple promise in the Bible. Everything is through the, Israel, uh, the, the nation of Israel. Friends, if Israel had never existed, you wouldn't have salvation. It's just that simple. God made them for that purpose. They received Christ. They gave birth to the Christ in flesh. They are truly the ones through whom God brings salvation. So what Jesus is saying is just patently true if you even read a few pages of your Bible. So he puts this out as a test to this woman, saying that the healing he offered was intended only for the sons of God. And he says it through an idiom. Look what he said. The food and the idiom he's using as a way of discussing his blessing or his healing. I can't just give food to anyone, i.e., I can't just give my healing to anyone. Remember, we said at this point in his ministry, who is he healing? Only the believer. Or we might say it this way, only the child of God. So he's saying, I can't give my food to just any dog. I have to give it to the children, to the faithful. But here's the thing. He chose such a provocative idiom. I mean, he's talking to a Gentile woman, a a, a group of people who have long been enemies of Israel, and he's used an idiom with the word dog in it. It's just tailor-made to provoke her. Because if she was in the flesh, she'd be like, okay, those are fighting words, calling us a dog again. You guys always do this. No, he's not using it in that sense. He's using it in an idiomatic sense. But he wants to see if her heart's listening or if her flesh is listening. If she had not been a believer, all she would have heard is the word dog and the rest would have been done. But now, look how she responds. She responds like a secret agent who's just heard the first half of a statement and she knows the answer and she's going to give him the second half. She says, well, even the dogs get crumbs off the master's table. Well, look what she just did. First, she acknowledges Scripture's teaching of a Jewish Messiah sent to Israel because she's acknowledging his earlier statement. She didn't contradict it. She didn't say, oh, no, 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 you can't say that. She acknowledges it implicitly by building on it. Yes, you were sent to the lost sheep of Israel. True enough. But that's not the end of the story is what she says. So she's not offended. She understands it. And in response, she puts it back on Christ and says, well, you're not mentioning the other half of the plan. We're supposed to be blessed by the nation of Israel also. And look, friends, when the Lord is offering you forgiveness for your sins, you don't criticize him for the way he chooses to bring you his grace. So as he spoke these words to her, testing her heart, she recognized that, came back to him with a proper response, and they connect in the midst of a crowd that had no clue what was being said. She was saying to Jesus that I don't want what you've come to bring Israel. It's for Israel. I want what you've come to bring the Gentiles because we are part of this plan too. Remember John 3.16, God so loved, not Israel, the world. 
that he sent his only begotten son. And when God promises to bring a savior through Abraham's line, he tells Abraham back in Genesis that he would use it to bless all nations. So she knows this. Proving her faith to Jesus, acknowledging that she knows what he's saying to be true, he turns around in verse 28 and he acknowledges her and says, Up, this is great faith. We've connected. You get me, don't you? Your daughter's healed. Mark reports that when the woman went home, she found her daughter free of the demon. Notice, even the miracle itself is done quietly. He's not looking for attention, he's not looking to win the crowd, he's looking to minister to the children of God. Now, how did the disciples feel about this moment, do you think? We don't know. It's not said. Do you think they celebrated the Gentile woman's healing? Her daughter's healing? Do you think they were amazed at her faith also? I told you she was a believer. man. Look at that. No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Uh, I think they totally missed it. How do I know? Because of how the chapter ends. Look what comes up next. And tell me if we haven't seen this before. Verse 29. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, and a large crowd... Large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them, and he started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. Now, if you feel a little deja vu here, it's totally understandable because it was only a chapter ago that this exact, almost exact same thing happened. That is the feeding of the 5,000 in the earlier case. Now, before we look at the events here, let's just, let's address what I think has to be the obvious question. Why is this happening again? And especially so soon. In fact, some have actually come to the conclusion that this is not a second event, that it's the same event repeated, and then they use it to undermine our confidence in Scripture as if the the Bible's got it wrong or that it's all kind of made up and jumbled up and so on. Look, let let, let me be clear about one thing. This is not a, a repeating of the prior incident. In fact, there's some very clear differences here. And secondly, if you don't understand why it's being repeated, then you're not following the thread of the story at all. Because the whole point of it being repeated is because they had a problem they didn't learn the first time. And everything between that incident and this one proves that, if you're just following the story. So here we are in a different location with a different crowd, but the same basic problem. And before we look at it in detail, when you consider that you're seeing this repeated, you have to understand there's a principle being explained in the course of this, a principle of Scripture. That is, if you don't learn your lesson the first time, you get to repeat the class. This is a general rule of following God. That is, every time God wants to do something in your life, it's not as if the God who made everything is so impotent that he gives you a try at something, you fail, and he's like, oh, oh, well, I guess we're done with that one. Let's just see what else we can do. No, God just keeps working on that. In fact, I have a little saying with people. Sometimes we'll do counseling moments, and people will tell me, I just can't this problem, and I haven't been able to do this. And it'll turn out that they've had this same problem for years. And I say, you know what? Until you solve that, maybe God's not going to give you step number two. 
He's given you step one. Work on step one. When you get past step one, well, we'll find out what step two is. But you can't go past step one, it appears, because that's important to your development as a Christian. Don't solve the problem. You get to repeat the class. Now, in the first time in Bethsaida, what was he trying to show them? Well, that the kingdom ministry works a certain way. People who are burdened with problems are not to be sent away. They are to be cared for. They are to be ministered to. But they didn't learn that lesson. And now he has to repeat it. And he does it with some differences. And what we'll do when we study this for the sake of time, and just because you've heard it before, we're not going to go through the whole of it. Let's just look at the differences. Starting with the location. Matthew doesn't tell us where this is specifically, but Mark does. And in Mark 7.31... It says, again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. So he moves from Tyre to the Decapolis, a second map for the night. If you can look up behind me, you'll see the Decapolis. It's a region. And it's a name given to a region that had 10 Greek cities. Decapolis, the Deca is 10. Decapolis means 10 cities. They're all, for the most part, east of the Jordan. Only one of them was west of the Jordan. It's the, the city that today is Bet Shean. It's the ruins of Bet Shean. But all of the other ones were on the east side. And they were all very similar. Greek language, Greek culture, and the like. And so they came to be known as the Decapolis. But they're also incredibly Gentile. It's an Gentile region. So somewhere in that region is where Jesus goes. What that tells us is this. The crowd that's sitting before Jesus on this particular occasion, Gentile. What was the crowd he fed at Bethsaida? Jewish. It's a different group of people. So friends, if our friendly disciples objected to caring for a large crowd of hungry Jews, I can assure you they were even less interested in caring for a large crowd of hungry Gentiles. And that's the bias that I told you about this morning or this earlier tonight that runs deep in Jewish culture that Jesus is trying to work out of them. Jews were taught from birth that God only favored Jews and that all Gentiles were lost, they were dogs, they were unloved by God. And if you think God is telling you that Gentiles are unloved and unworthy, then you would look at them the same way and feel no problem with it because if it's righteous for God to think that, it's righteous for me to think that. That was the way they worked it out. That was the justification. They looked at Gentiles with contempt. So here you have a mountainside filled with contemptible Gentiles. And it gets worse because they're crippled, lame, blind, mute, and desperate. I mean, you don't get much lower than that. If if one Gentile woman shouting was enough to disturb them, how do you think they felt about this scene up on the mountainside? It must have made their skin crawl. They must have been thinking, we got to get out of here, Jesus. And this is exactly, now here's the irony, this is exactly the type of crowd that will make up the church. This is the church. The church is not primarily Gentile. I mean, Jewish, not after the first century. It is Gentile. And not just Gentiles of privilege and power and fame and beauty. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, Speaking to this crowd of Gentiles in the church, he says, Consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And he's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things, that is the perverse or the, or the ugly things of the world. And the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. That's God's plan. Those who are in the church, generally speaking, it's not random. There is a conscious effort on God's part by His Spirit to select disproportionately from among the lowly of the earth for the church. 
Which is why you don't see the rich and famous flooding into the church. It's not because their fame or their money keeps them from coming into the church necessarily. That's just our way of putting a human face to it. The scripture says, by God's choice, he is not bringing the gospel by and large to the mighty and the powerful. Why? Because as Paul finishes this, he says, so that no man may boast before God. It is consciously purposeful on God's part to populate the church with the likes of us. No offense. So that when the world in general looks at the church, they mock us for being the pitiful. What do they always say about those who have a, a Christian, strong Christian faith? It's a crutch. Right? It's to keep the unwashed masses docile. That's what the prideful and the rich and powerful tell themselves for why they're not in it and we are. And what God says is, no, no, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Thank you. Hallelujah. So, the miracle that precedes this one is exactly the same. Jesus starts by healing the crowd. Remember I told you that he will heal sometimes by exception when he's doing it out of compassion. You notice in verse 32 it says he feels compassion for the crowd. That's your little marker that Matthew gives you to tell you. And then he asks his disciples, Hey guys, we got a crowd here. Let's feed them. Think you know how this works, right? And they said, Nope, we don't know what to do. we got just a little bit of food here. What are we going to do about this, Jesus? At which point he just banked them all in the head. And he says, what, do you got any loaves, any fishes here? And they said, yeah, we got seven loaves. Oh, gee, seven loaves, guys. Where have we seen this before? Anybody know? No, don't know what you're saying, Jesus. All right, well, give them to me. Starts replicating them, gives them, says, go down, feed them. Somewhere in the middle of this up and down thing, they must have said to themselves, we've been here before, haven't we? <sighs> Isn't it funny? But don't you realize how common this is? At the end, they, they take inventory of the available food. There are seven baskets, the sign of completeness. You know, I wonder if they ever notice the connection somewhere in there. At some point. Once again, Jesus directs their steps. Once again, they get their supply from the leftovers. It's all the same story. What you learn is this. They did not internalize the first lesson. But more importantly, and I think this is really the key, they have yet to figure out the love of God. You know, you wouldn't have to have seen the scene before, if you know the love of God, to understand what God was likely to do in that set of circumstances, would you? You might not have been able to figure out the exact plan, but you would have said, I think God's going to do something here. He can't leave all these people hungry and without any hope. That's not like God. These guys don't even see that. They did not recognize what Paul writes. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. Love is kind. Love is patient. It does not seek for its own. And in this case, the love of God extends beyond the Jewish people to include Gentiles. You can sum up the meaning of this two-journey story today with two points as we finish briefly. Here's the first one. Jesus came for Israel, yes, but he came for the world also. And that's got to be our focus. And when I say that, I don't mean geographically. You know, it's easy to say that. We're, we're supposed to save the world. And some of us think, oh yeah, Maui, there's got to be some unbelievers there. Right? Morocco. Oh, let's go to some exciting place. Cuba. That's fine. But it's not a geographical issue, friends. People move around. It's not about where they live. This is about ethnicity. It's about ethnicity. The Jews of Jesus' day, by the way, they were not opposed to ministering around the globe. They wouldn't have had a problem with going to minister to Jews on another part of the earth. No, the problem is they wouldn't go to a non-Jew. Jesus wanted his disciples to embrace faith wherever and through whomever it presented itself. A Gentile woman crying out for relief had equal right to be heard as a Jewish mother 
crying out for relief. And prejudice and bias is a part of pride. It's a part of the sinful heart. Everyone has it. Everyone in here has it to a degree. And our Christian witness demands better. Our Christian witness demands that we set aside prejudice in all its forms so that we would see every single human being as potentially a child of God. And you want to know whether you have prejudice in this area, or that is to say whether you think how someone looks or where they come from determines whether or not you bring them the gospel? Here's how you'll know if you do that or not. When you think about mission trips, if they say... Europe, you're all for it. And if they say the middle of some you know, dark African continent country and you're all against it, well, think about why. Maybe it's hygiene. Maybe it's comfort. Well, those aren't better reasons, by the way. But maybe that's your concern. But I've also encountered people whose concerns run a little deeper than that. And they need to be, they need to be taught this is about souls, not about all those physical differences. These disciples held back their care for this woman because, as Matthew put it, she was a Canaanite. And you remember, Canaanites were cursed. Well, they're cursed. We don't need to worry about them. Yeah, but you know what? You're all under a curse. We were all under a curse called sin. And if God redeemed you by His grace, He can redeem anybody. Do you notice the change in the number? It was 5,000. Now it's four. Do you know why? Five was the number of grace. The first lesson was about this is how grace looks. Four is the number of the world. Four compass directions, four corners of the world. There's fours in the world. This is a lesson about the grace of God goes to the whole world, not just to one nation. And then lastly, thank you for your patience tonight. The Lord wants to teach us something. And when he does, we can do well to learn it the first time. But if we don't, we will repeat it. And as you've heard me say, there's an easy way and there's a hard way. To follow Christ. The easy way is you learn your life's lessons with your eyes open. Here's how that means to me. Everything that happens to me, everything that comes my way, I try to look at it as a lesson from God. Why did that happen? What was its purpose in my life? How am I supposed to learn from this? God is talking to me. And often the best lessons in life only get learned through trial and difficulty. In fact, I like to say if you're experiencing a particularly bad trial, it's a sign that the Lord has an especially important lesson He wants you to learn and there was no other way to get it through. So consider the woman. She would never have met the Messiah if her daughter had not been cruelly possessed by a demon. And the same is true for whatever trial you're facing. If you live with your eyes down on this world, woe is me, I've always got these problems, why doesn't God love me so I can get rid of my problems? You know what God's saying to you? Why don't you learn from these things so we can move on? But I love you too much to let you miss this lesson. So the disciples who fed a crowd of 4,000, a few days after they fed a crowd of 5,000, get to do that service and sacrifice a second time. And patterns in your life, friends, are a message. When you see the same ruts, the same mistakes, the same trials, ask yourself, why haven't I learned this well enough to move on? What am I doing? You know, the old adage, do the same thing again, expecting a different result. It's insanity. I like to say it this way. It's disobedience. Our goal in life isn't just merely surviving trials or avoiding trials. This life is passing. The next one is what we're preparing for. So your goal in life is to learn as much as you can from what God brings you now so that you're ready for what He's going to bring you next to be as ready as we can for the kingdom.
That's what you learned tonight. You learned that there is not only the need to reach the world because Christ is here for everyone, and don't let your bias get in the way, you're also here to experience the world so that you can deal with your own internal change that God is trying to work out in you before the kingdom. Thank you for the extra time tonight. We had a lot to cover both before and during the sermon. I hope it was worth the time you gave it. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, help us learn life's lessons, Father, as you present them to us. Help us prepare for what's coming in this world and the next. Guard our hearts against the prejudices that might prevent us from doing as you call us to do, just as it did the disciples in their own time. And Father, give us eyes for eternity to appreciate that the things we experience now, though we might experience things that are very hard, and all discipline is not joyful in the moment, Father, but we know that as we receive it, as we learn from it, in time, it will produce a peaceful fruit, a fruit of righteousness. I ask, Father, that each of us will carry that with us as we leave today, a thought of how we can use what we've learned so that we might be more pleasing to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.